burying the dead. Now, you might at first think, is this going to be a message about cremation versus burial or other way? No, 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 no. There's something powerful that needs to be seen by every Christian believer, and that's going to be the burden of our study tonight, is the biblical concept of baptism. Now that we see God's truth, now that we've understood new light, now that we've grown in him, what is my response to that? And biblically, that response is baptism. Tonight, the burden of our time together will be to understand what the Bible says about baptism and answer some common questions about it. But before we study anything in God's Word, what do we need to do first? Pray. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study your Word and to spend just a few moments away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. And Lord, we ask that you would bless our time together, not just in fellowship and not just in uh, enjoying each other's company, but from a deeper understanding of your word. Lord, this important subject of baptism, you have given clear instruction in your word, so please let the teaching be clear tonight, not because of the messenger, but because of the message itself as we see it directly from your word. So open our eyes to see your truth, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin tonight in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18 Some of the last words that Jesus said to his disciples before he returned to heaven. Again, we're understanding now that this is after Christ has had his sinless life and successful ministry, his substitutionary death on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He spent 40 extra days with his disciples, and now he's about to go back to heaven. These are some of the very last words that Jesus said to his followers while he was here on earth. And it's called the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Well, we'll start with verse 18, just because we want to give context. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, notice he's saying, all authority has been given to me, so my first command with this authority is to tell you to do what? Go. Now, he didn't just say, now, all authority has been given to me, now go away. He's not saying that. He said, go and do what? Make disciples. Now, tell me something. A disciple is one who does what? A disciple is one who follows someone else, right? Follows a teacher. John the Baptist had disciples. In fact, many of Christ's disciples were first disciples of John the Baptist. If you recall, John the Baptist came preaching repentance, and we're going to see a little bit later on, baptism. And he said, I am not the Messiah, but the one coming after me will be. And then he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the the sin of the world, and some of John's disciples then became Jesus' disciples. Jesus bid them come, follow me. And Jesus now tells those who have been following him to go make other disciples. Apparently, and we're going to get into this a little bit more tomorrow in our final message, those who follow Christ are expected to get others to follow Christ. Right? Right? Disciples apparently make other disciples. Jesus' last instruction, go make disciples, go therefore and make disciples 
of all the nations. He didn't just say, of your friends, your family, or your local church. No, no, no. He says, go everywhere. In fact, everywhere you go, make disciples. How do we do this? Well, the goal, it says here, is to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 20. What's that next verb? What's that next action you're supposed to do? Teaching them to observe some of the things. Is that what it says? All things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father. So this was a command of Jesus. He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and the earth. So with that authority, I say to you, go and make disciples, teach them my truths, and baptize them. This is a command of Jesus. And the question we're looking at now is, is baptism required for salvation? Clearly, it is a command of Jesus to his followers. In fact, the last thing he does before he leaves, the crowning act of his ministry, after, of course, his sacrifice on the cross, was to tell his followers to go baptize others. It's a command of Jesus. John chapter 3, let's look at another gospel account where Jesus is explaining the importance of conversion, genuine heart conversion, and the expression of that conversion in baptism. John chapter 3, of course, records the story of Jesus' midnight interview with that Pharisee who is convicted. His name was Nicodemus. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? Water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That sounds pretty definitive, yes? Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is from the mouth of Jesus, the same one who commanded, who would later command his disciples to go baptize. He tells Nicodemus, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Seems very definitive. In fact, look at Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Mark's account of Jesus' final instructions includes this call to baptism as well. Start with verse 15. Mark chapter 16, and we'll start with verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The last one says, go teach. This one says, go preach. Apparently, you're supposed to go convey information, call it teaching or preaching, but you're supposed to give what you've received. Go, and then do what? Verse 16. He who believes, by the way, believes the word you just preached, right? He who believes and is what? Baptized will be what? Saved. And you might say, look, God commanded it, as part of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, 
He told Nicodemus flat out, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot be saved. And now, he says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Therefore, baptism itself is necessary, is a requirement for salvation. Now, but watch what Jesus says now. Look, it's still in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not... Now, does it say get baptized, or does it say another word? Believe. But he who does not believe will be condemned. In the passage that we're just read here, there are two verbs, baptize and believe. Which one is the active agent of salvation? Is it the baptism itself that saves you? Or is it the belief on the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you? Right? And people might say, oh, good. That means all I have to do is believe, and then I don't have to get baptized. Slow down, though. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So let's study this out a little bit more. I know that people try to look for examples of because I understand sometimes baptism is like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. Maybe there's an example where somebody, and they always come up with the same example. What about, aha, do we have any example of someone in the Bible who accepted Christ, believed on him, did not get baptized, and we know that they're going to be in the kingdom? Oh, I love it. The thief on the cross. They say, yes, pastor, but what about that thief on the cross? Let's take a look at it. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 By the way, it says something about Jesus' mindset when even in his dying moments, he has time to save one lost soul. That should be an inspiration to us. Regardless of what we're going through, whatever difficulty, if the Lord puts someone in your path, there's time to save a soul. We'll come back to that later. Again, that's teasing for tomorrow. Luke chapter 23, the story of Jesus' death and those who died with him. Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 42. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He expresses his faith in Jesus, wants to be part of his kingdom, calls him Lord even. And Jesus said to him, now we'll pause right here. Last evening, we looked at this particular passage, right? And noted the punctuation like quotation marks and periods and especially that comma changes the meaning of the text, right? As it reads, it says, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But the problem is, Jesus didn't that day go to paradise. By Sunday morning, he's saying, Don't cling to me, I have not yet returned to my Father. Scripture records that he went to the grave and rested over the Sabbath and went back to work on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. But read even correctly, it says, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So we know from Jesus' own lips that this man will be in the kingdom of God. So let me ask you a question. Did he get baptized? No. Not that we have any information on, right? No record of him getting baptized. So let me ask you this question. Why didn't the thief on the cross not get baptized when he expressed faith in Jesus Christ. 
because he was a little tied up, right? Literally. I mean, he, he did not have any opportunity. Now, if he truly loved the Lord, would he manifest that by keeping his commandments? Yes, right? But in this opportunity, now let's take a look at our study guide. Notice what we see here. The thief on the cross died before he had an opportunity to be baptized. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is the thief on the cross our example? No. I know that there are many people. I've worked with young people long enough. They're honestly, if they're being honest and forthright in their hearts, hoping to have that thief on the cross experience. I want to live my life however I want to live in the very last moment. As I see death approaching, it's like, time out real quick. Lord, save me in your kingdom. (laughs) But is that the ideal of our Christian life? To live as far away from God and in the last minute squeeze in. Friends, the thief on the cross is not our example. Jesus on the cross is our example, yes? It's not the other guys, but it's the guy in the middle cross, right? This thief on the cross turned to Jesus in the very last moments of his life, and the Lord honored that faith, promised him that he would be in the kingdom, in paradise with him, but he did not get baptized. Thus, we can clearly see, let's look at our second point, that baptism itself does not save. There is nothing magical, nothing mystical in the water itself. The process doesn't like physically cleanse sin off of you or spirit. The dunking of water over you, I mean, going into the water down you, that water does not save. Only faith in Jesus Christ saves. Amen? But having said that, if Christ asked you to do something, would you do it? Absolutely. Why? Not because it saves, but because Jesus saves and we love our Savior, yes? So let's be clear about that. John chapter 3, verse 36. Back to John chapter 3 now. Notice that the active agent of salvation is not the act of baptism itself, but its belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 and verse 36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice again, just like we saw in Mark chapter 16, that the active agent of salvation is our personal belief in Jesus Christ, our acceptance of him. And what follows is a demonstration of that faith. Because as we saw, mentioned already, John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. He doesn't say you keep my commandments so that I'll love you, but as a response to the love of God, we become faithful to his commands. And if Jesus says go and get baptized or go and baptize, we do that not because the baptism saves us, but because of our relationship with our Savior, we do what he asks. Very simple. I want to make that clear from the outset. So what we're talking about for the rest of tonight's message, when we talk about baptism, is not a magical experience that itself saves you, but it is a demonstration of your faith in a Savior who does. Is that clear so far? All right, now let's continue on. Let's get into kind of the nuts and bolts of baptism, because I know that there are different experiences with baptism, 
People come from all walks of life. Some people have never been baptized. Some people had the experience that they were baptized. They don't remember it because they were a few days old, right? And it was done to them. Uh, other people had water poured on them. I've heard people spiritually baptized, but there was no water involved at all. There are people who were immersed under the water and came out. Is there a formula? Is there a right way to get baptized? Or does anything that involves water count as baptism? Well, let's see what the Bible says about this. And what you're going to find is there is incredible consistency to the Bible's message about how to be baptized. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. Here the Apostle Paul is writing some practical counsel to the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, notice what he says. Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 4. There is what? One body and one, what? Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. You notice there's a word that gets repeated there. One. There's one body, one spirit, one hope. It continues in verse 5. One Lord. By the way, do we have a lot of Jesuses or just there's just the one? One, right? One Lord. One faith. Ideally, that's God's ideal for his church, right? Does he want us to be splintered off and some believe this, some believe this? No, no, no. There should be unity of the faith, right? One Lord, one faith, and how many baptisms? One. It doesn't say there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, and several baptisms. So there's one. So it would be incumbent upon us, just as there's one true God and one Lord, to find out who that one is. And if there's one body and there's one true faith, I want to know what the truth is. I don't want to know variations on a theme. I want to know what the truth is. And if there's one baptism, what is it? But apparently, according to the Apostle Paul, just as, just as much as there's one Lord, one Spirit, there is one baptism. For one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That idea of one, that there is a way, there is a truth. Now, let's go back to our study guide now and let's fill in the blank here. The Greek word from which we derive our English word baptism is very actually close. It's baptizo, okay? Baptizo, and originally, it simply means to completely put in water, to submerse underwater. If you baptize something, you dip it under, you dunk it under the water. It goes all the way in. Not merely to have water put on. Okay, so the first word I fill in the blank is in, the second one is on. Nowhere do you see a reference in Greek where baptizing something means that they were spritzed with water or, you know, splashed with water or anything like that. That baptism itself, the word itself means to go underwater and then come back out. Like go down and back up. The word itself means that. So it's, no, it's a good thing that he uses for this particular memorial, this particular ceremony, this word, because the word itself tells us what the method is. Baptizing is to just do that, to baptize, to baptizo, to go in water. And consistently we see this as the only baptism form ever used in the Bible. Go to John chapter 3. I'm, uh, John chapter 3. When John... 
This is not the author John, but this time the John the Baptist John. By the way, was John the Baptist a prophet? Yes. In fact, not only was a prophet, he got some pretty high accolades from Jesus himself, did he not? Jesus said he was the greatest of all prophets. How many books in the Bible did John the Baptist write? None. In fact, we have no record that he ever wrote anything down. I just want to make that clear. You don't have to have had something in the Bible to be a true prophet. Jesus recognized the ministry of John the Baptist as a fulfillment of prophecy, that he himself was a prophet, and he pointed people to Jesus. That was his role. Okay? And he was known as John the what? The Baptist. That wasn't, the Baptist wasn't just his last name. Right? It was a moniker given to him. It was a nickname given to him because that's what he was known for doing. John who baptized people. John the Baptist. So if we were looking in Scripture to see how he did it, he was the first one recorded in Scripture who did this rite of baptism, of course, leading people to repentance in Jesus Christ. And notice what it says in John chapter 3, in verse 23, about the methodology and why he would choose to minister where he did. It says in verse 23, Now John also was doing what? Baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was what? Much water there. He picked his place to do his ministry according to Scripture because of this particular reason, because there was what? Much water. It didn't say he had water brought in or he had a special thing set up or a little tank or a little bowl or a little dish. It said he needed a place where there was much water. Okay, and we're going to see why in just a moment. Matthew chapter 3. Go to the other gospel record, still with John the Baptist and his ministry. Matthew chapter 3, we find the baptism of Jesus. John, I mean, Matthew chapter 3, we're going to begin with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be what? Baptized by him. Now, I don't know that this often happens, but look at this verse 14. And John tried to prevent him. By the way, if any of you would like to get baptized, I'm not going to try to stop you. But what was his contention with Jesus? Why did he say? Because there were other people that he would say, hey, don't, don't. But they were not bringing forth fruit, meet with repentance. But did Jesus have anything to repent of? Did he have any sin to confess? Anything to get, did he have to get right with God, or was he right with God? He was right with God, right? So why does he need baptism? Well, Jesus explains. Again, verse 14. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Right? Compared between the two of us, I might be righteous compared to these people. Compared to you, I'm filthy rags, right? I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. That's interesting. It's almost as though he has a schedule that he's on, yes? Of course he is. He said, No, this is the right time to do this. I'm beginning my ministry, and you need to do your job so I can get started doing my job, right? This is the beginning of Christ's public ministry. Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. This is a fulfillment of some righteous decree of God that has to happen now. I'm not doing this because I need confession and repentance. I don't need a new life in Christ. I am the resurrection and the life, right? I need to begin my ministry. It's time to do this now. Then he allowed it. How gracious of John. (laughs) Now watch this. And when he had been baptized, Jesus, what? Came up immediately from the water. What does that tell us about the baptism of Jesus? If you got to come up from in the water, that means you went down into the water, right? So John picks a place to baptize where there's much water, and we have the actual record of Jesus himself coming to him to be baptized and apparently went down in the water, has to come up out of the water. As Scripture records here, When he'd been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And it is there at the baptism of Jesus that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit and inaugurating his earthly ministry as the Savior who would eventually die for our sins on the cross. The beginning of his public ministry was right on time, just as Daniel had prophesied, and Jesus said, no, it has to start now. But in that fulfillment of prophecy, we get an indication of how baptism itself works. That you go down in, and you come back up. Very simple. Let's continue. Mark chapter 1. Notice the same thing. The Bible is consistent in its treatment of this topic. Verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. Now what does it say? In the Jordan. Was he baptizing people next to the Jordan? No, no, no. He was out in the Jordan. There was much water there. He went out into the water, and the people who came to be baptized joined him in the water, and then they went down under the water and came back up immediately. We're just putting all the pieces that Scripture gives us to paint the picture of what this one true baptism is. He was baptized by John in the Jordan, and again, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting like a dove. Now, Acts chapter 8. Let's go to the New Testament. Jesus' followers apparently understood from the ministry of John the Baptist, and I would imagine the instruction from Jesus himself, and if not just his own example of how baptism went, they carried forward baptism the same way that John the Baptist had inaugurated it, the same way that Jesus had exemplified it. They now continued that same practice of baptism. John chapter, I mean, sorry, Acts chapter 8 and verse 38. Now, this is the story that we're going to come back to in a few minutes of Philip and the Ethiopian. It's a fascinating story, but I want to get to the punchline for right now, and we'll come back and fill the details in in just a few minutes. But it says, So he commanded the chariot to be still. To stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went what? Down into the water, and he baptized him. Notice exactly John went into the Jordan baptizing, and the people who came to get baptized went down into the water. 
Here, the same thing happens. Philip and this convert go into the water together, and one goes down all the way and comes back up, right? There's a consistent methodology given in the Bible for how to be baptized. It's complete immersion into the water. So let's go over to the back side of our study guide here. Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? Matthew chapter 28. Again, we're going to go back to this great commission. And I want to highlight something that we might have just kind of flown by before, but I want to make it clear here in Matthew chapter 28. Again, he says with verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 18 and onward, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, doing what now in verse 20? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. Please take out your study guides and let's fill in a few blanks. I want you to see this directly from Scripture. Apparently, according to Scripture, in the Great Commission, teaching is a prerequisite to baptizing. Apparently, there's not only a form of how the actual event itself occurs, but the preparation for that event is consistent also. We're going to see example after example of this in the Bible. But understanding is a prerequisite to expressing your faith. Okay? Teaching is a prerequisite to baptism. Because it says make disciples, make followers. Well, they have to know who they're following and what he taught. And once you understand that, he says, now baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Your goal is to make disciples who know Jesus, who follow his commands, and then you baptize them as a sign and a seal that they are willing to follow Jesus because of what they know of Jesus. Thus you see that teaching and baptizing are linked in the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, teaching is a prerequisite to baptism. Well, and let's think about, well, okay, that's great, but think about the practical application of this. Apparently, the Lord wants you to understand what you're committing to. It matters to God what you think, not just what you endure. Okay? It matters to God what you think, not just what you endure. And I say that, for example, this simple premise strikes at the root of, let's say, infant baptism. Do infants understand what they're doing? No. Hopefully, through the great guidance of God's grace and good family, uh, good family uh, upbringing and good parental oversight, they will be trained up in the Lord. They will learn and grow just as Jesus did in wisdom and in knowledge, uh, in stature and in favor with God and man. They will develop into someone who will know. But do they know? No. But apparently, understanding is a prerequisite to believing. That makes sense, yes? By the way, this also strikes root at some of the spiritual highs. I've seen it happen. You'll have a 
one message, you'll have one idea or one powerful thing or a video shown or some sort of lights and sound production. And it's really, ah, woo! Very emotional, very spiritual high. And they're like, all right, if you want to get baptized, come on down. Haven't taught you a thing. But you're feeling all, you know, woo. I don't know if that's a theological term to feeling all woo, but you understand what I'm saying? That there's, it might strike at a, a sensation or a feeling, but it's not genuine faith because you don't understand what Christ has taught and you haven't made a commitment to follow it. Right? Apparently, teaching is a prerequisite to baptism. If you're going to follow Christ, he wants you to do it with your mind. Amen? In the Great Commission, teaching is a prerequisite to baptism. So let's go to the next cycle. The next line then. A disciple is someone who, after having learned about Jesus and his commands, commits to following him and demonstrates that decision by being baptized. Okay, we'll break that down a little bit more, but I want to say it slow and clear. A disciple is someone who, after having learned about Jesus and his commands, commits to following him and demonstrates, if you want to use a fancier word, ratifies. You sign on the dotted line, you act it out. You demonstrate that decision by being baptized. Thus it makes sense, again, when Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Believing is the prerequisite. It is the transaction, right? Placing your faith understandably in the hand of Christ and then demonstrating that by doing what he commands and being baptized. Okay? So let's make that clear. A disciple is someone who, after having learned about Jesus and his commands, commits to following him and demonstrates that decision by being baptized. Thus, we come to our final line. If you don't understand Christ and his commands, you are not ready to surrender and be baptized. I want to make that clear. God wants you to follow him, not just with your mind or with a figment of your imagination or because the rest of the crowd is doing it or because I had this happen to me when I was a kid. He said, I want you to know me and choose you this day whom you will serve. Baptism is simply the demonstration of a personal, intelligent commitment to follow Christ and his word. Are we clear? All right. Thus, this strikes at the root of some practices. Already we've struck down from the Bible, pouring water, sprinkling on infants, these spiritual highs, these mass things where nobody really knows anything, they haven't been taught anything, but sure, it's just a thing that everybody's doing doesn't want you to get caught up in the crowd. He wants you to have a personal walk with him that has an intelligent commitment, and from that, you ratify it by being baptized. Let's be clear. Now, let's get even deeper. Why this particular act? It seems a rather odd thing, especially if you're from a non-Christian perspective. It's like, man, I decided to follow Jesus, so you know what I did? I got on this robe, and this guy lowered me into the water, and I came back up all wet. They're like, what? <laughs> what if, why don't you just sign a document? 
Why don't you just like raise your hand? Why such a contrived, bizarre ritual? You know, you think about it logically. Of course, I got baptized. It is part of Christian culture, but from the outside, it's like, what a, what a seemingly bizarre notion. I accepted this belief, and therefore, this gentleman put me under the water and pulled me back up. You ever think about it? Sometimes, you know, I was, I was talking to some dear folks earlier this evening, and every one of us comes preloaded with what our life already is, and that is what we think normal is. So if we've grown up in a Christian environment, you're like, oh yeah, baptism, no big deal. But think if you were coming from the outside looking in. Baptism? Why? Why did the Lord specify this particular action as the demonstration of faith in him? Let's look at this. Why did the Lord choose this particular thing? In the Old Testament, notice this, sinners would place their sins on the sacrificial lamb, yes? They would bring a lamb from the camp, bring it to the altar, and they would confess over it their sins, thus transferring their guilt to the innocent uh, sacrifice, yes? Now, once Jesus came, of course that lamb represented whom? Jesus Christ. So after Jesus came, and here's our big term for the evening, was the antitypical lamb of God, A type is simply a shadow of the thing to come, right? A foretaste of the literal that's coming. So did the lamb have any inherent goodness that it could give to the person? No. The lamb is simply an emblem of the real thing that's coming, right? It's a type, and Christ was the anti-type. So once Christ came and was the actual lamb, as John said, behold, the lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Once Christ came, do we need to bring lambs and sacrifice them to shed their blood in type? Of course not, because the anti-type has come and fulfilled that, amen? But you notice in the Old Testament, you would come to the lamb and you would place your sins on it, transferring your guilt to it in symbol. Now Christ has come and has been that lamb, so we don't need to kill lambs, we don't need to bring that because Christ, our Passover, has been slain. Now, again, once Jesus came to be that sacrificial lamb, we no longer kill animals in our place, but instead we spiritually join with Jesus in his death and resurrection. We still lay ourselves upon Jesus and trust in his merits and make him our sacrifice, right? We identify with him, but not through shedding the lamb's blood because he was the lamb. So how do we participate in this process of becoming in Christ, right? Well, through baptism. This is why this particular form is chosen. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. Let's see what we're talking about. The Apostle Paul speaks about this rather clearly. Romans chapter 6. And we'll just start with verse 1. I know it says verses 3 and 4 in your study guide, but let's broaden it out. Every time we have the opportunity, let's get the larger context. Here, the Apostle Paul is dealing with people who said, you know what, once I've come to Christ and once I got saved, I can, you know, keep sinning. <laughs> he addresses this. This is not a, new te- this is not a, a modern day thing. This has been, 
same thing with, you know, people are people all the way through, right? So the same things we wrestled with, they wrestled with too. And Paul had to address these issues. Look what he says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? (laughs) By the way, that's a really interesting thought. You'll say like, look, if I want to show how good God is and how much he'll forgive, I'll come up with a whole lot of sins and I'll show that he can forgive that much. Is that our goal? (laughs) To show how big God can forgive by showing how big we can sin, right? Of course not. Of course not. He's like, the goal is not to live in sin. In fact, the goal is to die to sin and live in Christ, right? In fact, he says, certainly not. It is absolutely not that. How shall we who, look at this, died to sin live any longer, where? In it. Notice he's saying, when you come to Christ, there was a death involved. And of course, we don't literally have to die. Christ literally died for us, right? But we join him in his death, slaying that old man and living the new life in Christ. Amen? Notice this now. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then he adds this. Or do you not know that as many of us as were, what's that next word? baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Apparently, baptism spiritually joins us with Christ in his death, which was a literal death, but we lay ourselves upon him and we join him spiritually. We don't have to go and literally kill ourselves. Christ took that penalty, amen? But spiritually, there's a transaction. We lay the old aside, and we live in the newness of life. So he says, again, look at verse 3, Or do you not know that as many as us of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, follow this fascinating little concept. I mean, intriguing. I got, I got scolded for fascinating. Um, <laughs> It's really an interesting concept. Christ died and then was taken down from the cross and then he was buried in the tomb, yes? And then on the third day, he rose again. There's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Apparently, we are not only to join Christ in his death, but now watch this. Again, verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death? Therefore we were, what's that next word? Buried with him through what? Baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Do you see that? That baptism, the reason this particular form of going down into the water and then coming back up again, it seems like from the outside such a bizarre thing. But when you understand the literal death of Jesus for our literal sins, obviously we don't physically die and resurrect, but we need to spiritually connect ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So he institutes this baptism form 
Which adds another reason why sprinkling won't cut it. Why pouring won't cut it. Why just saying the magic words. No, no. There's a particular reason we, we participate in this form. Because if you think about it, the Bible says that as Christ died, he breathed his last. And then he died. He gave up the ghost, right? Then he was buried in the grave, and then on Sunday morning, he comes back to life. He resurrects to new life. Now walk through the... It's such a beautiful thing when you understand that we're spiritually joining Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. When you go into the baptistry, you breathe your last, (laughs) at least for a few moments. If someone were to go down to the baptistry and start to breathe underwater, it would be a bad baptism. (laughs) It would not fare well, right? Anytime you go into the water, you... And you stop breathing. Then you go down and you are plunged into what the Christians call the watery grave, right? Why do they call it that? Because we're going into, we're spiritually joining Christ in his burial. So we literally cut off that previous life in a spiritual sense, you understand. But the closest thing we can come to joining in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is reenacting it symbolically in the process of baptism. You breathe your last, you lay down in the grave, and then you come up out of the water in the newness of life. It's a powerful thought. Why this particular form? From the outside, it seems completely arbitrary, completely random. Why would you do it? But when you see what Christ wants us to experience, he wants us to connect with his sacrifice and to internalize it so that it's not just his victory far away. He said, the victory that I gained, I wanted to be yours. He says, if you believe in me, be baptized. And Paul explains, again, Romans chapter 6. Let's walk through it one more time just so we see it clearly. Or do you not know, starting with verse 3, that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Every step of Christ's sacrifice, he wants to be for us, and he wants us to personally identify with it. So he says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. So let's go to our fill-in-the-blanks here. Baptism is a reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why this particular form was instituted in the Christian faith. Because baptism is a reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And here's a key thought, kind of where we get the title from. You don't bury people alive. Like, do things just get creepy and weird? No, think about it spiritually. One of the biggest problems in the church today is that we too often bury people alive. 
but they haven't understood who Jesus was. They haven't made a commitment to die to that old life. They haven't surrendered their life to Christ, and they're buried alive and come out, not in the newness of life, but still just a wet old man. That baptism not only demonstrates what Christ did for me, but what Christ wants to do in me and change me to be more like Christ. Yes? It's not just a form you go to get your name on church membership or like go through this thing or I have to. No, no, no. You are personally identifying just as much as Christ physically died and then rose again. He said, I want you to spiritually die, breathe your last, be buried, and come up new. Come up clean. Start fresh. Romans chapter 8. I think that's the thinking that the Apostle Paul was going along when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Watch what he writes here. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Think about that. Living your life how you want to live it according to your own terms, you'll get life until you die, right? But if you join with Christ, if you decide to lay that old life aside and die spiritually, then you can have eternal life, right? Which goes to our next line. One of the greatest ironies in Christianity is that in order to live, you must first, what? Die. If you want to live in Christ Jesus, you have to be willing to die to your life outside of Christ Jesus, right? And I'll say it again, one of the biggest problems we have in the church is that we bury people alive. And they think, no, 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 Christ saves you in your sins. No, he doesn't, friends. He saves you from your sins, amen? He said, I came, you can have life and life more abundantly. Not the same life that you have, but a whole new life. Therefore, if anyone is in me, he's a new creature, right? The old has passed away and the new has come. There's a transition here from the old man of sin to the new life in Christ. What we don't need to do anymore is bury people alive. We need to bury the dead and let Christ raise them to new life in him. I hope we're making this patently clear. Patently clear. By the way, let's go back to Acts chapter 8 real quick. I notice that we skipped a large passage there, and I appreciate not one of you scolding me, But I'm guessing somebody was following along and said, hey, 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 he skipped something. All right. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. I told you we would return to the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. And here we go. Acts chapter 8. It illustrates a a very important point about this believing as a prerequisite to baptism. Understanding occurs first. Acts chapter 8 We'll just start with verse 26, the whole encounter, but it wouldn't take that long. There's not much here to it. But it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to whom? Philip, okay, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. 
So he arose and went. By the way, isn't that great? He said, the Lord said, all right, get up and go to the desert. He doesn't say why. He doesn't say it's hot. He says, yes, sir. A demonstration of true discipleship is you're willing to do what Christ commands. So he rose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury. So this is the queen's accountant. And had come to Jerusalem for what purpose? To worship. Does this man already have a belief in God? Yes. He's been to Jerusalem. He's on his way back. He's been worshiping God, but apparently there are still things he does not understand. And the text follows this through. And had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading what? Isaiah the prophet. Was he studying his Bible? Yes. So this guy is already not just interested, he's already been to Jerusalem. He's a worshiper of God. He is studying the Word of God, but we're going to see he doesn't understand what he's reading yet. At least not fully. Now watch this. Then the Spirit said to Philip, this is a quick aside, there is some tomfoolery in the church that says that the Holy Spirit is just a force like magnetism or gravity. You'll see all through Scripture the Spirit can think, the Spirit can talk, the Spirit can plan, and he said, get up and go. And he said, now there's that guy, go to him. So the, 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 go take care of him. Here this Spirit is telling him to go. And Philip obeys. And notice what he tells him to do. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Now, I would be very interested if the chariot was moving and being drawn by horses. He's like, go to the desert. Good. Now, see that chariot off there? Go run and catch it. But let me just pause right here. Can the Holy Spirit give you abilities beyond natural abilities to do the will of God? Yes. If he need to speak in a different language, like if I needed to know Spanish and I had to, can he give me the gift of tongues? Sure. Can he give me the gift of legs if I need to run over? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so it doesn't say it clearly there, but whatever God commands, he gives the ability to fulfill it, right? So this is what happened. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. How is this guy studying? Out loud, right? Is he ashamed of his faith? No. He's going up. To worship, he's coming back down, he's reading his Bible. I wish there were more Christians. Would just be reading their Bible. Right? Just out loud. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, now notice this, what's his question to him? Do you what? Understand what you are reading. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Which is why earlier in a question and answer session, I could say, you know, if you really want to get right with the Lord, just pick up the Bible and start reading. But having a study guide is very helpful. And here he's already worshiping. He loves the Lord. He's studying his word, but there's some things he doesn't understand yet. It's not clear to him yet. And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And lo and behold, that's what Philip's there for, right? To give him a Bible study. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. 
The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generations? For his life is taken from the earth. For extra credit trivia points, does anybody know what passage of Scripture that is from? It's from Isaiah, you already know that, right? (laughs) Chapter 53. For he's laid on him the iniquity of, of us all, and by his stripes we are healed. He's studying about Jesus but he doesn't understand that he's talking about Jesus. Because from our perspective, we've been hearing about Jesus for 2,000 years, at least, well, from me, for 30-plus years, right? But the concept that, oh, yeah, that's talking about Jesus. But Jesus had just lived and died in this man's lifetime. And so it's not a well-known fact. To us, we're like, well, duh, that's talking about Jesus. But he's really wrestling with this. By the way, don't take for granted that everyone is spiritually where you are. When you go to give a Bible study with someone, it's, odds are, if you're in the Word at all, you know more than they do. Don't be afraid that they're going to ask a question too hard, nor should you look down on them, of course. You just be honest. We're all at different places. Philip here, is it a place that he can be of assistance to this man? Who's a genuine follower of God, he just wants to know. Now watch this. Watch his question. So the eunuch, verse 34, answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? And of course, who's the other man that he's talking about here? Jesus Christ. Does he know it's Jesus yet? No. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. He preached the present truth. Jesus just came and fulfilled this thing. And let me tell you, this prophecy has just occurred. And he preaches Jesus to him. Beginning, by the way, it says beginning in that scripture. Is that the only scripture he went to? No. He said, all right, let's start with where you are, and let's build from there. Beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, verse 36, as they went down the road, they came to some what? Water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being what? Notice he says, now that I understand, I'm ready to get baptized. And then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Again, the active agent of salvation is your faith in Jesus Christ, but it's demonstrated in baptism. Same formula over and over. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So as we read earlier, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he came and he baptized him. Now, when they, this is really cool. When they had come up out of the water, notice again, you go down in, then you come back out up, same method. The Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. The Bible is full of all kinds of just really quick, oh yeah, and he disappeared and went somewhere else. Really cool miracles. Friends, a life in Christ is is not dull. Let me tell you something. Satan wants you to think that if you come to Jesus, you're going to give up all your fun. That all the old life, that's where the fun was, but this new life, 
boring. But friends, that's a deception of Satan. Life in Jesus Christ, according to his own word, is life more abundantly. It's better in Jesus than it is in the world. Is there someone who can say amen to that? That your new life in Christ beats any day of the week what your old life of sin was. Bottom line. So this man understands he's ready to commit his life and he is baptized. And of course we looked at that. Why the act of baptism? Because it unites us with Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. The victory that he gained on the cross, he wants us to have in person. So we experience the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus spiritually where he had it literally. By the way, just another quick aside. There is a memorial to the resurrection that Christ instituted, and it's not keeping Sunday. It's baptism. People say, no, 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 we follow this baby because this is the memorial to Christ. No. Christ himself instituted signify that baptism is what ties us to his death, burial, and resurrection. The celebration of the resurrection of Jesus is the baptism that Christ instituted. But let's continue on. Final thought. What does it actually mean to be baptized into Christ's body? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There is a great misunderstanding floating around in the Christian world that when you get baptized, you get baptized into a sort of vague, enigmatic Jesus, just a spiritual experience up in the sky. But that's not the picture the Bible paints. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 12. Notice what he's talking about here. For as the body is how many? One, and has many members. So there's one body, but different parts of the body, yes? Okay. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is what? Christ. Notice it said Christ has a body. And of course, the body of Christ is a term used over and over to represent the church. Right? An organized body on the earth. And notice again verse 13. For by one spirit we were all what? Baptized into one body. You get baptized into Christ's body. Amen? There is no such thing as getting baptized into a nebulous, vague, independent Christ, independent of other people. Apparently, Christ has a body, and when you join him, you join his body. You become a member of the body of Christ. Yes? This is what the Apostle Paul seems to be clearly teaching here. Again, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and have been made to drink into, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Okay? Now I'll go down to verse 27. He continues. We could just read the whole chapter, by the way, and I would encourage you to do so. He keeps going back to this analogy of the church being the body of Christ. Skip down to verse 7, 27. Now you are the what? Body of Christ. And members individually. 
So notice, you collective, the body of believers, the church is the body of Christ, and you are a member of it if you're baptized into Jesus. Does this make sense? When you join Jesus through baptism, you don't join the idea of Jesus, you join the body of Christ, which is his church here on the earth. Again, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Back to Ephesians chapter 4, the the Apostle Paul goes back to this analogy of the body for the church of God, the church of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, speaking of the spiritual gifts that he gives, and again last night we talked about specifically the gift of prophecy, which is listed here. And I'll reiterate again, the only gift mentioned in every list of New Testament spiritual gifts is the gift of prophecy. But here in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4, it says, And he himself, that is Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the what? The body of Christ. And again, he's talking about his church here on earth. The body of Christ is used again. We continue on. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Apparently, what spiritual gifts are given is to build up the church so the members can be equipped to do service and become more like Jesus. It's the purpose of spiritual gifts. If we had time, we'd have a whole discussion on spiritual gifts, and there is a misconception that spiritual gifts are given just to enhance your personal walk with Christ. No, they're not. They're due to do work for Christ to build up the body of Christ that you're a part of when you get baptized. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the what? Head. Christ. So Christ has a body. Christ himself, the person Jesus Christ who is in heaven, is the head of the church. Amen? But his body is here on earth. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. Too many people want to get baptized into the head and have nothing to do with the body. You're serving, if I may say so, a decapitated Christ. Trying to sever his head from his body. But that's not how Christ operates. The head operates in heaven, controls, he dictates, he sends out the Spirit, he gives spiritual gifts. But when we come to him, we don't just join his head, we join his body, which is his church on the earth. Thus you can talk about one baptism in one body, which is God's church on earth. Hebrews chapter 10, by the way. Let me throw this one in. I think this is very important. People might say, well, I don't need church membership. I don't need a community of faith. I don't need the body of Christ. Well, Paul would have great issue with that as he talks about you have to be all joined together, each using your part to build up the body of Christ. Apparently, the point of joining a church is not for your own benefit, but to benefit others, to help the cause, to help Christ, to be a witness to others, to be a blessing to the world, and to buoy each other up, especially as we see Jesus coming soon. Look at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 24. 
It says here, and let us consider whom? One another. Too much of our Christianity is selfish. I'm just going to say some things plain. Too much Christianity is what can I get? Am I going to get into heaven? It's good for me. Do I have a spiritual high? Do I get this? Or if I come into a church, what do I get from it? What do I get from it? I don't go to that church because they don't really get much. But I go to this one because I get a lot out of that. It's a very get consumer mentality. But according here to the scripture itself, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, notice what it says. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Apparently, us coming together stirs up love and it leads to good works. Whole another topic, and we're going to get a bit into this tomorrow, but the church is too full of watchers when God's looking for workers. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as some, as is the manner of some, or in some versions say, as some... Uh, are in the habit of doing. By the way, it's almost as though he's speaking to church members now. Like, oh, I got, I got my Jesus ticket. I got baptized. See you later. Paul had to deal with people like, yeah, I got baptized. Now I'm going to keep living in sin just so I can show off how good, how much God can forgive. Paul's like, that's ridiculous. You died to the old man. You live in the new man, right? Here he has to address people who's like, no, I, I joined the body, but see you later. I'm going to go home. I get more out of, you know, just being in nature. with my No, no, no. He said, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But watch this now, how he goes on. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and watch this now, and so much the what? More as you see what happening. The day approaching. Friends, according to the study that we've gone through the last several weeks, is Jesus coming soon? Yes. Therefore, we need each other to stir each other up for love and for good works so we can finish giving the gospel to the world. We can represent the character of Christ and be a witness to all people, hastening the soon coming. And apparently, as times get close, Satan won't be happy with you. Do you think Satan wants to see Jesus come soon and very soon? No. So he wants to separate you off. Divide and conquer is a big thing for him. He wants to get you alone, just like you see on Animal Planet, right? He wants to find the weak. He wants to get you discouraged. He wants to get you upset. He wants to get you roadblocks, whatever it is, to get you off course and then eat you alive. According to Scripture, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. And apparently the way you beat the lions is you stick together. But when you wander off on your own, you leave yourself vulnerable. You disconnect yourself from the body of Christ, and you're in danger. Hebrews tells us, as we see the day of Christ approaching, we should press together, press together, be a body of Christ, waiting for see the head face to face when Jesus comes. So let's go to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. As we discussed already these previous meetings, Revelation chapter 12 walks the body of Christ through its history. Starting in the Old Testament there, the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon and under her feet and the garland of stars on her head. She gives birth to a child, which is Jesus Christ, of course, and he's taken up into heaven. 
And as it goes forward in time, it talks about there'd be a time of persecution for 1,260 years, but the earth would help the woman. And of course, in Bible prophecy, a woman always represents the church, right? And notice in the very last passage that apparently God has a people on the earth who proclaim the truth of God's word. Apparently, according to Revelation chapter 17, the dragon, who is Satan, is enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. And they'll be known as those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So you're like, oh, there's so many options out there. What church should I join? There's so many denominations. There's so many divisions. Let me tell you, friends, look for the church that keeps the commandments of God as the testimony of Jesus Christ, that preaches the truth of God's word in the character of Christ and say, that's who I'm going to be. Wherever the lamb goes, that's where I want to be. So we've been leading up to this. I'm going to make an appeal tonight. First of all, as I've done every night, let me ask you this question. Has tonight's presentation been clear? Can you raise your hand, please? Praise God. Now my next question. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, if you want to commit and say, yes, I'm in full on, would you stand as we sing this closing hymn with us? All to Jesus I surrender. Praise God for that. Now, the appeal's not over. <laughs> the appeal's not over. But we're going to sing a song, and what I want to ask for tonight, we've had appeals where you can say, yes, I want to recommit my life to Christ and come down front. We did that at the end of the first week. We had an appeal where we said, if you need special prayer for something you're having difficulty with, why don't you come down front? And tonight, the appeal is very specific. I know that there might be many here who love the Lord and have been committed to him all his life, have been baptized and are faithful members of the church. That's great. But let me ask you a question. If there is anyone here, anyone here, who has not committed their lives to Jesus Christ and has not joined his body on earth and wants to join God's faithful people on the earth through baptism, tonight's appeal is for you. Tonight's appeal is for you. So if, here's my simple appeal. As we sing this song, we're looking for this. If you want to say, Lord, I am ready for baptism. I have learned. I have understood. I see your light clearly, and I want to commit my life to you. And because I love you, I will keep your command to be baptized the way you told me. If you want that experience and you're ready to get baptized, I would like you to come down front while we sing this song. Also, there are many of you, I'm guessing, who are just now learning things from God's work that you heard like two days ago, and you haven't fully soaked them in, but you're ready to get ready. Do you understand what I'm saying? That you're saying, Lord, I, I'm, I'm not quite there, but I know that I want, you're like that uh, eunuch on the road, right? The Ethiopian, who's looking at the word of God, struggling with it and saying, Lord, as soon as I understand this, I want to commit and be baptized. I want to join, but I need to understand first. So the appeal has two parts. Number one, if you're ready. And number two, if you're ready to get ready. Do we understand? And again, I have no problem making an appeal if no one comes. <laughs> but I would be bankrupt as a minister of the gospel if I did not give people an opportunity to do what Scripture says and be baptized into the body of Christ. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.